Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, I just want to delve right into topics that are shaping our world, from technology to sustainability, and how they interact with social impact. As your host, I feel very honored today to have Josh Nauer with us. He is a serial entrepreneur, particularly noted in the tech space. He's started many successful triple bottom line companies, which we'll talk about what that means for those of you who don't know today and delve into it. He, as I said, is an incredible serial tech entrepreneur. He's a former advisor to the Obama administration and a co-founder of Reseed. He's also a general partner at JumpScale an adjunct professor at Carnegie Mellon and University. I pronounced it right, didn't I, Scott? An advisor for Columbia Technology Ventures, NYS Serta, and a board member at WQED, which of course, those in the know of PBS station founded by Mr. Rogers. He's known for ceaseless fascination with emerging technology and data, and he's continuously working towards making decisions for a better future. He's seen everything from the African Savannah to Fortune 500 boardrooms, and has made a significant impact on various fronts, including open data initiative and corporate climate disclosure. So prepare to delve in deep into the exciting world of environmental, social, and governance, what we call ESG in the space, impact as we converse with none other than Josh Nauer. Welcome to the Caring Economy, Josh. Toby, thank you so much for that warm introduction. I love your whole CV. It's it's like going on a wonderful journey in a matter of a couple of minutes, but I want you to bring it to life. If sure. you wouldn't mind, Josh, we always start out by asking our guests to tell a little bit about their life history, how they, maybe where they grew up, how they were raised, how they found their way, pivots, mentors along the way. Just take two or three minutes and give us a sort of a, a review of Josh Nauer's life. <laughs> sure, I will certainly try. Um, I grew up in New Jersey uh, in the 70s and 80s, and uh, basically uh in a middle-class uh, family. And every summer, uh, my family would load up, my parents would load us up in the family station wagon and we would drive out to visit different national parks around the country. Um, and I really got an appreciation for the beauty uh, and depth of nature, uh, an appreciation for seeking respite and solace in uh, and excitement also uh, in nature. And also, as uh, I was I was getting older, started noticing things around me that didn't that seemed incongruent. Uh, you know, why is it that when you drive into many national parks, uh, for example, you literally go from a devoid wasteland of of no uh, nature and you know or, or very denuded nature to lush, beautiful, uh, pristine old growth forests, just as you know one example. Mm -hmm. And that disparity it, at a very young age in my elementary school days started. Be down a path of asking a lot of questions about what happened what happened you know how come the rest of the country doesn't look like this and and what caused it to not be that way so i at a very early age luckily uh, was encouraged uh, by mentors uh, my teachers at the time had a science teacher uh, uh, mr weinberg uh, was my science teacher uh, early on who encouraged me to delve and ask more questions um, he really engaged with me you know i think i was a kid that would have been very distracted in school and probably bored. Um, and he really engaged me and activism actually was the thing that really caught my attention. Mm -hmm. So from an early age, I was uh, organizing environmental protests and uh, education campaigns and things like that at my school. Um, I started networking with other students because I was definitely weird in my in my school. And, and so connected with other students that were doing the same thing at their schools and started uh, 
connecting with and created a national network of students um, that um, were interested in environmental issues that eventually became the Student Environmental Action Coalition. And, and I was one of many dozens of kids uh, that helped uh, get that going. And that sort of was the that that was the thing that really excited me. Um, I was able to um, help take action. I was able to educate those around me that that weren't um, as familiar, get them excited and get them even more excited than me and, and you know, launch a bunch of different campaigns. When I got to uh, so that that organization grew to about 40,000 students uh, nationwide um, by the time I went to college. And when I was in college uh, early on, I wanted to keep in touch with them. So this was 1991 that I arrived at Carnegie Mellon University here in Pittsburgh. And there was this thing that I'd never experienced before called the internet. And this internet could allow you, it's obvious today, but uh, you know, I, I saw the ability to be able to send one email out to thousands of people um, and have people start interacting with each other um, through those email lists and online chats and other, sort, other forms. Um, and then I discovered the web. Uh, Tim Berners-Lee was actually uh, visiting the university, um, and I was able to, um, you know, learn about this crazy new thing called hypertext protocol. Which uh, I will admit, when he first showed it to me, uh, demoed it for me at a science fair at Carnegie Mellon, um, I didn't quite get it. Um, and Tim actually went uh, left. You know, obviously he was just visiting, so he went back to, I believe, Switzerland and um, emailed me. Um, one of the first uh, early uh, web browser, uh, you know, that wasn't, uh, that was graphical. So um, basically when I saw that, the light bulb went off and I realized that technology that I'd actually, I frequently have been drawn to technology could be an amazing enabler um, for the types of change that I wanted to see in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, that launched a career path for me of creating uh, a few nonprofits along the way, although mostly uh, in the for-profit realm, um, seeing that business specifically could be uh, very somewhat counterintuitively to most, but businesses could and, and market forces could actually be a force for good. And um, that has been a driver of mine. So basically, if you draw Venn diagrams of, of different things, it's uh, technology, uh, you know, change in the world that I want to see um, and business. And basically at the heart of that, yeah, where, they, where they cross over, um, that has been the formation of, of my you know, founding uh, vision, basically, that I've had for my career. And I've created, as you mentioned, a few companies along the way um, and have had uh, managed them in, in what's called, called a triple bottom line um, model, which uh, there are many mentors that have helped lead the way um, on that. I was brought into a network of them through the, something called the Social Venture Network mm -hmm. um, and uh, got to meet heroes of mine. Um, that had started in the 70s and 80s companies, um, Ben and Jerry's, um, lots of uh, many, many others um, that were focused on that triple bottom line. And I wanted to bring that into the technology space. And so that's my first company it was called Green Marketplace. Uh, in 1996, uh, we created some of the first e-commerce sites for the natural products industry, had a triple bottom line uh, focus on that, balancing people, planet and profit and um, making decisions decisions that would be either positive or neutral uh, for them. And that, that was a decision-making framework, basically, that we had. Uh, that company, just fast-forwarding, I was able to grow um, and then sell uh, and, and had a great exit in 2002 um, and uh, to a publicly traded company. And uh, then 
uh, started my next company uh, through a research lab at Carnegie Mellon University that had a bunch of IP uh, around bringing together lots of data from different places to help people make better decisions. Um, and, and what better platform could environmental decision-making and community-based decision-making, uh, that was very exciting to me that we could use these technologies for that. And I created a company called Riza. And uh, Riza went through a whole bunch of iterations, but uh, basically, as many tech companies have to do around pivoting and all the normal issues that we all face uh, in our entrepreneurship. And uh, that company grew uh, quite large and became, um, we did a whole bunch of projects with ecosystem-based data, uh, where communities of uh, indigenous people, communities of um, you know, landowners, of business people, of governments were all in, able to interact in a common platform around data and make joint decisions uh, and have access to all of the data around uh, that decision making. So I sold that company in 2017 to Nielsen, uh, another publicly traded company. Uh, but along the way, um, in the early days of Riza, that community-based data collection and that community-based data sharing um, became a foundation for um, my being uh, invited uh, to be an advisor at the White House to help with thinkthroughdata.gov um, and think through specifically ecosystem uh, services and how those services could uh, and data specifically to support them could be used as a framework to affect change. Um, and those ecosystem services, one of the first ones that that certainly has, has successfully come to market is the carbon market. And that is um, an area where I met my current business partner, um, in that work, that's how uh, Reseed, my current company, came to into existence. And uh, you know, once again, pursuing it with the same zeal and the same excitement that I have for uh, using technology and business and change, um, social and environmental change in this case, um, as the foundational pieces for helping to fix a whole bunch of sort of broken systems within. Uh, ecosystem services um, that mm -hmm. specifically the carbon markets have been around for decades now um, and yet less than one percent of carbon credits on the market today come from uh, the agricultural sector even less uh, almost none actually uh, come from smallholder farmers in the agricultural sector which make up the largest single land holding mass uh, in the world there's two billion people engaged in smallholder farming around the world and all of them literally all of them uh, live at or below the poverty level in the countries in which they're operating. And so uh, it's a huge opportunity. It's a market opportunity, um, but it's also uh, a very effective uh, lever point basically to engage um, with communities of people who care deeply about um, protecting biomass and protecting biodiversity um, on their land. Uh, they have been doing it for generations and uh, they are, you know, we're losing around 10% of smallholder farmers every year. Um, they're pushed off their land by industrial scale agriculture or other uh, threats to their land. Um, and when that happens, uh, it causes about 25% of emissions uh, from uh, of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And so this is a cycle that we can not only stop the emissions that might come from the threat of losing those farms, but also, uh, support financially support those farmers as business partners and work with them to actually draw down even more carbon um, mm -hmm. and be part of the solution of, of helping to clear the atmosphere of several hundred years of industrial uh, pollution. Seems to me you're actually giving credit where credit's due for the role that the farmers play that have been has been taken for granted. 
because right. it hasn't been known how invaluable that is. So now you're putting a price on that, which is on price, which is sort of similar to a conversation we had with our last guest, Paula DePerna last week. Wow, Tim Berners-Lee, uh, he's mythic. And to think that you were actually sitting at a university gymnasium or something, and he actually sat down with you. Tell our listeners who he is, and uh, I want to ask you a question about him. Oh, sure. So Tim uh, is literally uh, the inventor of the um, hypertext transfer protocol, which uh, we might all recognize by the letters HTTP that we put in front of all URLs. Um, and basically, he created the web and had a vision for what the web could be used for, um, you know, to connect together documents and, and uh, lots of different types of data and information in different forms. And um, the whole concept was a distributed network of these documents that could be linked to and from to connect things together. And it seems pretty obvious now, uh, but at the time when he came up with this, it was a radical new concept uh, that um, was something that, you know, as we know, truly changed the world. Yep. And um, in 1990, I think it was 91 or two, late 91, my freshman year, or maybe early 1992 when I actually met him. And it was amazing because he was just, a guy um, presenting, you know, he had two silicon graphics boxes that were pointed at each other, basically, you know, sitting in, uh, I don't know if it was actually a gymnasium, but something close to oh, it. Wow. it was visual, yeah. The visual is about right on a, you know, with a folding table kind of, you know, that it was sitting on. And, uh, you know, it was just one of many different technologies that were being shown off at, at effectively what was the science fair at the university. Yeah. Well, he, um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things I've always admired about him is he has said of late, he hasn't apologized. He's just reflected on the decision that was made back then about whether to allow anonymity or not in the internet. And in my view, the growth of the internet has been in part fueled by the allowing of anonymity, but the it's at the cost of public discourse and I would even say shame at points because people can be anonymous online. So the court of public opinion has been skewed. And I wonder, A, if you if I got that right, B, if you would agree, and C, doesn't that draw parallels to where we are now with AI? I mean, I feel like we're in another era of an inflection point where it I think we're going to be fine, more than fine. We'll talk about it. But I just wonder what your take is on those three points. Yeah, look, I think in almost every technolo technological revolution, which let's be clear, the web invention of this protocol um, was a revolutionary act. I think at the time, uh, there were many other competing protocols. There were many other uh, ways in which people were talking about doing it. I don't know if you remember Gopher and and other you know ways and other types of uh, systems that existed for for finding and and, and storing documents and, and sharing them. But I think the earliest days of technology, it always seems to be that there is a computer scientists or you know engineers in general um, tend to be about solving very specific mechanical problems of some sort, right? And mechanical, you know, can be in the cyberspace as well, of course. Um, but it's very much about, you know, in that case, it was about how do we move most efficiently bits and bytes and ones and zeros and 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 you know have an exchange take place for it that would be truly distributed um, and that no one central entity could possibly control. And I think that. What always happens, and this is something that I feel like we need to take under advisement as we deal with AI and, and other emerging technologies, um, is you know the initial purpose of why they were created 
um, may be different from what societal needs or societal desires are. And so, um, you know, we have to get better at uh, thinking through the ethics and the the, the values associated with um, how we create technology and why we create it and what are the ripple effects basically that might happen. The best technologies, it's a famous Raymond Lowy quote actually, um, you know, the most advanced yet acceptable uh, technologies, which was a concept that, that Lowy always uh, promoted, um, you don't always know how tools are gonna be used, right? We think of a hammer just as an example, right? It's something you hammer a nail in with. Um, a hammer can make a pretty useful doorstop sometimes, right? Um, it can be a weapon. It can be um, used to wedge things into things in ways, you know, like there's all kinds of uses of technologies and we as humans, um, and I would argue uh, in the animal kingdom in general, we see a use of tools where mm -hmm. things are adapted in ways that never you really would have thought of, right? A plant stock, you know, which, you know, exists in the world to support the growth of a plant and, and you know, nutrients up and down and all the rest, um, you know, can be grabbed by a chimpanzee broken up and used to scoop out ants out of an anthill. Um, I'm not suggesting and don't really want to get into, you know, what the concepts of is there such a thing as intelligent design in the big place? And, you know, let's, let's just stay away from all that. But the point is things happen. And our brains are such uh, as as a species that we adapt uh, tools for whatever purpose we want. And I think that um, we need to understand that, accept it, and kind of move on, if you will, like in terms of yeah. let's get to the point where we're talking about, okay, well, how is it that this could be used? And if it could be used as a weapon um, in any form, if it could be used yep. to harm people in any form, um, let's think that through. And I think anonymity is both good and bad. It, you know, anonymity in an orderly society that has justice systems and uh, clear, you know, consequences for actions and all sorts of things. Um, anonymity uh, can be a problem, right? Because then you can have people, you know, who at the fringes of that, who want to act outside of the norms of that society. But anonymity, uh, and I've done work uh, in helping with free speech and journalism and open data in countries where you don't have systems of equity and justice um, that are uh, acceptable, let's just put it that way. Um, in oppressive regimes, for example, anonymity is a lifeblood. <laughs> and it's the only way that we learn that, you know, right now we have this in Russia. I mean, when we're looking at um, who, you know, uh, whistleblowers and people who are actively uh, helping to expose some of the, you know, cracks in uh, the facade, basically, that, that these other regimes are creating, anonymity is uh, a lifeblood and a lifeline. So look, it, there's always there's always a balance between things. And I think that um, we need to get smarter, um, I think, as a species uh, about and, and certainly in society uh, about how we deal with these situations and when and under what, what circumstances. And sometimes um, unexpected outcomes, actually, I would say in human history, unexpected outcomes have almost always been positive, um, but there are also some serious negatives, you know? Let's look at the Industrial Revolution and this brilliant idea, right, of digging carbon out of the ground, um, you know, and and drilling for it, and, you know, but mostly digging for it out mm. of the ground, um, using it as the fuel that a very efficient form and safe, if you will, at the time in terms of uh, the, the boundaries of how people were thinking about things. It was much easier than, than the whale oil that we were using before. Um, and, you know, this idea that hey we can burn this stuff and it's pretty cheap and it can it can make 
engines go and you know literally power the industrial revolution um that was a good idea at the time and yeah. nobody thought about the future consequences of hey wait a minute uh you know if all this smoke is going up in the atmosphere where is it going and what does it mean and um once again rather than i think you know the early days of my youth looking at um how to you know metaphorically throw stones at and protest you know against that from happening and, and going up against um i'm really interested in how do we engage uh with you know with people to uh actually just make it really profitable for them to put that carbon back in the ground yeah. because we can actually do it so i i um i'll come back to that i want to just say on the ai just to finish that thought i am a big believer in this is the year we had as a guest a couple of weeks ago, Marty Chavez, who's among many things on the board of Alphabet. And he talked about this being the year of AI, which I happen to agree with, with open source and or open AI, barred Google. I believe it's incumbent upon all of us to engage with it, not yes. necessarily good, bad or anything, but just be aware of it. This is the first time in history, I believe, where we've knowingly been able to engage with algorithms, not blindly. And yep. so I think it behooves all of us to actually engage with it. And I've taught courses on it, on social impact, on single parenting. And I still am amazed four or five months into it now for me, how people are reticent or ignorant about it. And I just, uh, I hope people will actually try it out or get to know it instead of being informed by others' views, because it is so present and it's going to remain that way. I, yes. if you have any I think, so look, I, I think we need to be honest about what AI actually is. I think, you know, we think of it as robots and mechanical and, um, you know, disconnected and can never possibly uh, think or feel or um, experience in ways that we do. Um, and I'm not really convinced that's true. Um, I think that we're headed towards an age um, and I don't think it's just this year. I think um, over the next five to 10 years is going to be uh, a radical transformation of um, what we uh, agree on and decide is uh, living and sentient, because mm -hmm. quite frankly, uh, as humans and as a species, we've only recognized ourselves as sentient. Um, we don't recognize that dolphins are sentient and many other types of life forms are in fact sentient and may or may not be at different scales of, of sentience or intelligence or, or, or mm -hmm. whatever. Um, but I think... Uh, really what we need to be looking at and where I see the opportunity, and I actually think it's a great business opportunity, um, is to think about how we parent our children and apply those methods to um, how we think about um, the emergence of AI. Um, our children, you know, I think we can all speak about the fact, you know, I have two kids, they're, you know, now both going, both in college, uh, thankfully, um, but basically, um, let's face it, you know, the path from when they were born, um, and actually even prior to when they, they were born, was, you know, certainly rocky, and it wasn't always clear that my kids were going to end up where they are today. Who knew, right, exactly where they were going to be? But we had goals and aspirations, and we transferred our, um, our values, right, as parents mm -hmm. to uh, these beings that we created, um, mm -hmm. and, you know, nurtured and gave them specific types of experience to put them out into the world um, that quite frankly, you know, our goal as parents um, was to raise children that would do good in the world. Self-support and contribute to society. Absolutely. 
And so, but the aspiration and, you know, many philosophers and, and certainly we and, and popular writing and all the rest, we talk about this. We, we want our children to do more than what we were able, ever able to do. Um, we want them to be smarter than us. We yeah. want them to make better decisions than we did um, and all the rest. And I think if we think about AI in the same way, then, um, you know, there's this, you know, concept and many, many very smart people. Um, are very concerned about a runaway intelligence, right? That just mm -hmm. far exceeds um, where we are. Um, that is true. And it is actually going to happen. I'm a deep believer in that. Like AI, the minute that self-programming and uh, self-programming takes place um, and, and there's a code, uh, you know, DNA, if you will, it's not DNA, it's something else that we need to come to some common agreement around what to call it. But basically whatever that digital DNA is, that causes them to head off in a path um, and and you know evolve basically. Um, we really need to make sure that at least a bunch of them, if you will, and I do refer them as uh, sentient beings, basically that we need to be thinking about in the future, are equipped with some values that we hold dear and true, like we do with our children. You send them out into the world and hope, you know, quite frankly, hope for the best. And I know that. Um, you know, I don't believe that this is something that can be regulated. I don't think that um, governments, I don't think that society is actually going to come together and, and fix this problem in time. Um, I think what has to happen is that those of us who are out there trying to work for good and create a better world for ourselves and for, you know, other, all of the other life forms that exist, um, if we make sure that there's AI out in the world that reflects our values as well, um, one thing to remember is that there's no, you know, there won't be any guidelines about how, it's not like evil AI is going to outpace the development of good AI. And quite frankly, um, they're going to uh, start yeah. counteracting each other if we do this well. Yeah. So I'm really not, I don't think governments are going to be, I mean, our government in the United States is, uh, and most governments around the world are, you know, a hundred years behind on technology uh, regulation. I mean, yeah. we're still talking about trains and, you know, laws regulating them from the 1800s. Like we don't yeah. do well with this. Yeah. So uh, this is where I think market forces need to come into play. Yeah. Um, and uh, I do and hope to work with uh, those who are the programmers and the engineers that are, that are birthing um, and, and incubating these AIs um, basically to make sure that like, yeah, let's put some good values into them. Right. And let's not just repeat the same patterns of old. And let's let's you know, we know this is an issue. Um, and quite frankly, part of what we're doing, and, and I don't mean to bring this back to reseed or whatever, but part of what we're trying to do is we've built an AI component into um, the monitoring factor of what we do around. It's why we're able to work at such a small geographies of, you know, sub hectare or sub acre um, measurements uh, down to five meter square resolution of. Uh, accurately measuring carbon in plants and soil. And, and the way that we do that is to feed a whole bunch of learning data into um, Google Earth Engine um, and basically create a bunch of, we've created a bunch of algorithms basically that it's not fully AI yet, let's be clear, but it's it's on the path towards that um, so that it can actually make very hyper-local recommendations uh, for what you can do if your goal is to increase uh, the amount of carbon that's stored in the soil and this is where triple bottom line comes in, right? Uh, you want to help planet, right? Yeah. By increasing the amount of uh, photosynthesis, basically, that's taking place in, you know, a, on, on pieces of land. And then you also want to do it in a way that most benefits 
the smallholder, the landholders that are doing that work, um, you outcomes basically a highly profitable business mm -hmm. uh, model that has the ability to do good in the world. And you know, AI is no different in, in terms of potential impact than a corporate charter might be, right? Yep. Corporations can do good, they can do evil. Um, and yep, there's been a lot of evil, you know, or bad decisions that have been made. Um, but we have the ability to turn this around. And I think that, you know, at all things, putting positive, clear ethics and values into the DNA of the thing that you're building, whether it's AI or a business or a nonprofit organization or, um, you know, whatever else might come down the road in the future, that is a commonality that leads to, can lead to good outcomes. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, again today on The Caring Economy, we have with us Josh Nauer. He is a serial entrepreneur, well-known in the tech space, has spawned many very successful triple bottom line companies, is now one of them is Reseed that he's working on. Um, Josh, first and foremost, how do people be in touch with you or follow you if they want? They're using Instagram and, and Facebook and um, uh, threads. Um, and then also probably professionally, the best way to find me in link, uh, is LinkedIn. Okay. Um, I seem I like LinkedIn for professional sort of uh, engagements and happy to have people reach out to me through there. And you can also go to our website at um, it's it's just a web address reseed r e s e e d dot farm and there's a contact us button. And uh, believe it or not, I and and my business partners all get those emails and are happy to respond to people that want to Great. engage. I was saying to Josh before we started that I had never heard the farm uh, URL so or email. So yeah. that's fantastic. Pearls of wisdom, Josh. I mean, I, I, you. You seem somewhat stereotypical, if I may. I think of you as the the white male scientist in a STEM world. But um, any words of advice for someone who wants to get into tech, into serial entrepreneurism, and particularly those are more diverse than you and I? Um, someone like me uh, is not even qualified to be, you know, and doesn't have the the world experiences to uh, be a good advisor or you know to provide advice. You know, like I'm some sort of patriarchal, you know, expert. Um, but I think there are some truisms, right, that exist that I've I've certainly discovered and and others before me have have discovered. Um, when there is something wrong, when there's injustice, when there's a, a, a system that is broken, when there are uh, problems that just you know need to be solved. Um, it is apps the ways in which you can help address and solve those problems. Um, are quite, uh, there's a lot of room basically in, in our society for that. Um, yeah. There are many barriers. Um, you know, I have absolutely been privileged uh, to be a white male, you know, that was lucky enough to go to Carnegie Mellon and have an excellent education. And that set a certain, you know, there's a privilege associated with that that is uh, extreme. But it actually also is true um, that uh, more and more the ability for, um, systems to be created, technology to be developed um, at exceptionally low cost. The barriers to entry now are, are quite low from a um, cost perspective, mm -hmm. um, from a uh, how we build and compile things together in different ways and experiment. Um, there are uh, a whole world that has opened up, even since I came up as an entrepreneur, um, that is, uh, you know, the, the vast, vast, uh, uh, quantities of successful entrepreneurs of the world um, are in sub-Saharan Africa, um, are in uh, Southeast Asia, um, and in Central and South America. There are 
it is actually the case that, that is, those are the areas where the best ideas right now um, are, are formulating, where people are um, applying those uh, entrepreneurial ideas in the context of a culture uh, and, and in the context of, of localized culture, sometimes indigenous culture, and sometimes you know just other forms of culture that are more communal. And those are the ideas actually um, and the people that are succeeding the most. And I know we look at, at, at Elon Musk and we look at, at Zuckerberg and, and whoever, and we put them on a pedestal of like, these are the, the paragons of, of success. Um, I would argue they're not at all. Um, it's nothing personal against them. I'm not really attacking them. I'm no, just I agree. Saying, I agree. There's yeah. more than that. Yeah. There's way more than that. And I think that um, when I, you know, for most of my career have really looked um, and and learned a lot from and spend a lot of time listening, just showing up and listening in, in communities of people that do not look like me or do not come to the same background as me. Um, and honestly, that's where uh, I find the most inspiration and I find the most uh, learning. Um, what does it mean uh, when you're in an organizational environment to truly act as, um, you know, in, in, in mutualized uh, equal support with the person that's sitting next to you, regardless of what their title or background or position is. And um, when looking at uh, what are all of the different types of transactions uh, that we value, right? There's monetary type transactions, but there's lots of other um, uh, different types of currency that people are motivated by. Um, and much of it is not monetary. Yeah. So, um, you know, I find uh, that the hotbeds actually of entrepreneurship uh, that happen in some of the most devastated places on the planet um, and communities that have been devastated uh, are easily the most inspiring. And when I see uh, you know, the growth basically of not just one or two or three uh, sort of pinnacles, quote unquote, of success, mm -hmm. and all in scary quotes, right? Um, like we do in Western culture. Yes. Um, but when I see the entire community starting to rise and uh, regeneration and resilience actually becoming part of the fabric of those societies um, and cultures, um, that is to me what I'm most excited about. And that's mm -hmm. the, we talk about regenerative agriculture or regenerative um, you know, practices in general, those, that's where we need to be looking for where the healing takes place and where the growth takes place that is healthy, diverse, um, and full of actual life. Because quite frankly, um, you know, I look at companies like Meta, I look at companies like Twitter, I look at, you know, many other examples, um, they're devoid of what I consider to be life. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean that they're not living, it doesn't mean they're less than or anything like that, but they're not um, hotbeds of innovation and excitement and, um, you know, really co-learning and co-support. Yeah. And to me, those are not the types of companies and the types of styles to emulate. Yeah. And inclusive as well. You know, I'm reminded of the old saying that necessity is the mother of invention because those places in the world you've described, those are the ones that for survival reasons, for coming out of disasters, for whatever reason, those yes. are places where there is, in a sense, a more um, sort of, um, I don't know, a better Petri dish for experimentation, perhaps, than... Absolutely. And, and quite frankly, many of, you know, my family's history, going back just, you know, one or two, uh, you know, I, I've done, you know, with my kids, a whole bunch of looking at, you know, the history of my family, and, and um, it's entrepreneurs all the way back. 
right? And um, and it comes from the fact that my family, you know, when hundreds of years ago in um, what is now um, Eastern Europe, uh, in the area of Ukraine and Russia and all the rest, were seriously oppressed, right? And were rounded up and marched across Russia and landed in shtetls that were in, you know, currently what would be Western Ukraine. And, um, you know, that caused uh, and oppression and uh, sort of that type of upheaval and, and changes and, and all mm -hmm. the rest, um, as you said, is that's the, the mother of invention. That's when um, many people uh, find ways to survive. And when they came over to the United States in the early 1900s, um, you know, they continued that um, that thread. And, uh, you know, I was literally raised that this is part of what you need to do to always be ready. And it's why I think I'm able to see others who are probably much closer to that type of trauma um, in, in their current lives um, or maybe their parents' lives and just appreciate that, um, you know, of course, we're going to start seeing incredible amounts of creativity start to, you know, um, yeah. come out of that. And uh, it's part of my work that I currently do with indigenous communities around the world through JumpScale. Um, it's a lot of how I look to business models that are going to succeed or not. And I think that, um, you know, understanding our past and the traumas of our past will help us move forward in ways that, once again, if we can pass that knowledge on to the AIs, you know, that are coming, yeah. um, that will be very helpful. Well, you know, it goes back to the same sentient point you made for AI. It, it's the survival instinct, all right? It's human, right? Yeah. We we have that incentive wired in. So I'm very optimistic. We've we've run over. I'm very mindful. I want to thank our guest today, Josh Nauer. He's a serial entrepreneur in the tech space, dozens of companies. We need to have you come back, Josh, because we've only scratched the surface. I'm Absolutely. sorry I got my questions. <laughs> but I want to let you have the last word. I'm going to presume you're going to say you are optimistic about the future, but tell us what you think about the future. Look, I am optimistic at the future. And, and it's I'm, I'm saying these words as outside of my house right now. Um, you know, I literally can't really be outside um, in all of the air pollution and smoke uh, that that is happening You know, here on the East Coast in the United States. Um, and I'm optimistic because of the fact that I see such a groundswell um, from uh, the masses of people that I feel a part of that are um, working to overcome uh, what a few basically have have caused in the past, the, the, these pillars of industrial revolution thinking. And uh, basically, we have the creativity, we have the knowledge, we have the passion to survive, as you said. And I think we need to understand that survival isn't about just the fittest. It's about all of us working together and creating, um, it's a rising boats as opposed to, uh, you know, just catapulting one person to space. Yeah. And I think if we operate that way and we find, uh, you know, Mr. Rogers, actually, I, you know, going back to WQED that I'm on the board of, but, um, you know, Mr. Rogers always said, look for the helpers, right? And disaster, look for the helpers, the people who are running towards the emergency and who are looking to help and step forward and do the right thing. That's the story we need to focus on, as opposed to um, the very, very statistically few in our society that are truly sort of antisocial and anti- um, you know, who are just about themselves. Yeah. And if we can, if we can really see 
that in others around the world and find those people like you and I are connecting today. Um, we can find each other, we can acknowledge each other, and we can start working together. Even if we don't do it on a daily basis, Absolutely. we know that we're all working towards that, you know, common uh, widespread goal. And, and that's, where that's what gives me hope about humanity. Yeah, that's where we get the scale. And it's all, yeah. to me, that all comes down to leadership. So I want to thank you again, Josh, for joining us today. Let's um, keep the conversation going in a subsequent interview and you have a great day and stay indoors for now. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues.